This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Thank you for all your messages about the Andrew Neil podcast last week. Uh, I think lots of people have found the podcast uh, since then. So if you are new, welcome along. Uh, nice to have you along. Uh, do let me know what you think about the podcast at Matt Chorley or at Times Web Box. And if you like this, if you want more of it, then you can get it live every weekday, Monday to Friday from 10 o'clock on Times Radio. Listen on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app or at times.radio. Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, after all the fallout of the elections last week, we ask, can the Conservative and Unionist Party conserve the union? There seem to be problems on several fronts, so we've got a really cracking panel looking at that coming up. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnists. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists this morning, joined by Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Good morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Well, I hope you're all excited, dusting off your ermine and your tiaras, ready for the Queen's speech uh, tomorrow. Uh, we've already heard a little bit about what is in it. Um, uh, it seems to be that uh, you're, the, the house building uh, plans are all going to be put on hold uh, to keep the NIMBYs happy, and they're not going to ban foie gras. Uh, what's caught your eye so far, Libby, as to what might be in the Queen's speech? Um, a suggestion that they might be doubling the council tax on all second homes, uh, which I think is a, a good start, but it should go further because they're talking about exemption if it's either used or rented 70 days a year. I think, uh, to hell with that, I think second homes should attract a massively extra council tax because the areas which they tend to be in, you know, the holiday areas especially, uh, really need that money. And it, it's it's outrageous. They, they, they push up house prices. They, they are just, they are a blight. And it's really, you know, you say so, because I'll probably upset half the people on the Times by saying this, but if you can afford a second home, even if it's just you know a flat in London because you live in the country as as we do, you should be paying extra council tax on it. End of. I would love to see a nice socialist measure like that come in a Queen's speech from a Tory government. I sort of don't think I will. I think there'll be so many caveats around it. It won't. 
account for anything. It is interesting, though, because I think anybody goes, but anyone who, particularly during the past two years when uh, holidaying at home or staycationing, depending on your, your choice of word, uh, was such a big thing. You know, when you're wandering around a nice seaside village, you end up looking through estate agents' windows and think, oh, it'd be nice to have a little place. But it, you, A, you look at house prices and they've rocketed in those places. And the part, the thing that makes those places so appealing when you go there on holiday won't exist if nobody lives there. Well, also, uh, if a local nurse or primary school teacher can't afford, yeah. uh, there's nothing to rent and can't afford to buy, then you get a community slowly dying, you know, or people being pushed to its margins, as has happened in Cornwall a great deal. I, I think it really does matter. And I think it's something which is so easy to fix because, you know, anyone who's sort of hovering might think, actually, you know what, I could rent on holiday, I could go to a hotel on holiday, I'm not paying that big sum of money. And then the house prices begin to go down a bit, uh, which is good for everybody. And locals begin, you know, local begin to be able to stay in their own areas and work in their own areas. It, 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 it seems to be a, an easy tweak to do and no one ever has the bottle to do it. What do you think of this, Rachel? Well, I think I agree with Libby, actually. Um, but at the same time, the government's backed away from the planning reforms, which could have allowed more houses to be built in places like uh, the seaside towns that Libby's talking about, um, which would have then dealt with the problem at a more sort of strategic level as well. So you would have had more houses. But the government's kind of backed away from that, as you said, because of the NIMBYs. And the, the thing that strikes me about this Queen's speech is the incredible lack of ambition. So, the, you know, what is Boris Johnson's plan for the country? This is supposed to yeah. be it. Um, and there really isn't one. And the main, you know, they seem, I read there's going to be a sort of boast post-Brexit overhaul of the insurance industry. I don't think that is what the country needs as a, the sort of overwhelming priority given the state we're in. Um, well, they're ignoring your the, lot. They're ignoring education, aren't they? Which well, the, I mean, exactly. So looking at, the sort of, <laughs> looking at the school stuff, I, I haven't spoken to anyone in the education world who doesn't think it's kind of staggeringly unambitious given the um, problems in the education system uh, and the sort of reform that is really needed in schools it's basically a sort of tidying up exercise for a previous set of reforms um the idea of academies being created they're going to say all schools eventually at some point should become part of a multi-academy trust um it's just the sort of it's sort of totemic of the lack of ambition if you want to level up the country and make the country a better place you just don't start there that's, I mean, this has long been an argument, isn't it, uh, Libby, as to what is Johnsonism? And, you know, he was elected to do two things, defeat Jeremy Corbyn and get Brexit done. And we, there's a separate conversation to be had about whether or not Brexit is indeed done, given that we are still talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol. But he, he wasn't elected on a grand plan to reform and improve the country. And it turns out there isn't a grand plan to reform and improve the country. No, the interesting thing is, though, that over many years, and actually as quite a fan of a lot of his, his writings, I used to read Johnson's columns. And if you look at them, there, there is an attitude. There is, there is a sort of libertarian, cheerful, very communitarian, very, very inclusive attitude. And, uh, but the trouble is that is not actually a strategy. It's just an attitude. I think he did have... For many years, you know, as a, as a writer, he 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 spoke for he spoke for an awful lot of of middling 
middling, happy, sensible people who wanted happy, middling, sensible things. But that is not a political strategy. It's not a. And it's it, not a uh, grand plan. And that's and it's what's also missing. Not how he's, it's also not how he's governing. He's becoming a much more of a kind of um, populist, right-wing, anti-immigration, anti anti the sort of libertarian liberal approach that he championed as mayor of london but i don't know that he is i i think he's i think he's being pushed along by the tide of a lot of his mps he doesn't really understand his party i think boris johnson is actually a secret liberal um in in his heart and i think he's being pushed along by by some quite unpleasant right-wing extremist narrow-minded people in his own party and i suppose that's the thing in, in terms of uh what do we take away from uh the queen's speech and obviously we'll, we'll actually find out exactly what is in it tomorrow but there is a slight i mean the main takeaway is he can't do anything radical despite having a majority yeah. of almost 70 you know was it 75 76 at the moment um the fact that he is in a position two or three years out from a, for having won this this incredible majority, he can't do anything major. He can't even ban foie gras. I mean, <laughs> if, if he can't if he can't whip his MPs into uh, into back of that, no wonder he's not going to embark on a wholesale reform of the education system, Rachel. But isn't it partly that he doesn't really know what he wants to do? So there is a kind of vacuum in number 10, a vacuum of ideas. So if he really had a kind of platform that he could rally his troops around, a really kind of um, you know, not just sort of uh, small petty measures, but something that really kind of made was going to make the country better. He could win people over and persuade them, um, but he just doesn't have that. He hasn't got a platform that he really stands for. And actually, do you think that generally, Libby, there's a dearth of big because one of the you know some of the analysis over the weekend on the fallout of the, the local elections is that there aren't any big ideas from the Labour Party either. You know, in terms of you know, I mean, everyone's arguing over cake and curries. I'm, I'm aware that that is taking oh. up quite a lot of bandwidth at the moment. But it's not as if... I mean, the Labour Party's big idea is a windfall tax, Some, you know, which is retro, uh, if nothing else. Um, there's not a... no. There isn't, there isn't a competition of ideas in politics right now, is there? Absolutely not. I mean, the windfall tax is, is fine. You know, I, it, it might or might not be a good idea. I, I sort of slightly leave that to the business pages to work out. And there was a very interesting piece the other day, which made me sort of think again about it. But all it is, is a big lump of money. The question is, what are you going to do with a big lump of money? You know, we want big ideas. We want big ideas about localism, about devolution, about, uh, you know, about the things which education. are now... Yeah. Which, education and things which we're not, it's now... Sort sort of safe to do uh, because we we don't have to follow um, European rules. You know, there's there's no kind of excitement building around those ideas at all. And education, Ra Rachel's quite right. But I mean, I slightly <laughs> demur from Rachel because I don't think this is the party or the cabinet or the talent group to rethink education. I think uh, they, they don't have the brains for it. You'd rather they we left well wait. alone for now. We need to wait. For, well, it's not that well, but we, we need to wait for a slightly brighter gang. You know, in a world where where what's her name, uh, Mad Nad is um, is culture secretary, I think you know, don't, just get your hands off education because anything you do will be mad. You, you need to be careful being rude about Nadine Doris because she doesn't like it apparently, as I've discovered recently. Um, okay, uh, really, yeah. a politician disliking being criticised. I know, apparently, they're very, very 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 pro free speech up until the point you um, 
make a joke at their expense. Anyway, uh, let's talk about your column today, uh, Libby. Mocking millennials has history on its side. I enjoyed yes, this. I was just uh, I was just sort of um, amused by the fact that an American psychologist is now running special courses uh, for bosses who don't completely understand how their young workers think. You know, there's all these millennials who are sort of into different things and apparently they don't understand about deadlines. It's not their fault if they're late. A deadline simply means something different. It's a different concept. And that Generation Z uh, are not into social media. They're into live feeding and they need to stream their day as it happens. And of course, if you started work half a century ago, you're kind of rolling around laughing uh, at all this. <laughs> and of course, generalizations are ridiculous because there's lots of young people who just get on with it. And and they're in a very difficult world. They're in a world of short contracts and deeply disloyal employers who'll fire you at the drop of a hat like P&O and, um, you know, zero hours contracts. So they're, they're in a sort of different kind of world. But it was just the idea that, I mean, all down the years, I found all these wonderful examples of people moaning about younger people. You know, Aristotle complains that about the young and uh, all the medieval and 17th century writers endlessly going on about how pointless the young are. And Scientific American in 1858 saying they're obsessed with chess and therefore they're not thinking of noble things. Um, and I think that that's always been around. And, and now, of course, you've got, because people are defining generations in 15 or 20 years, you know, really short spans, you know, you've got people, there's probably a whole load of 90 plus people who think that 60 plus people like me are rubbish, you know, and I meanwhile are saying, ha, bah, you know, you middle-aged people in your 40s and 50s, you know nothing. And they're all saying, <laughs> they're all saying millennials are rubbish. And now the millennials are complaining about Generation Z. I think it's, I, I just find it funny that. Was all, it's, yeah. Yes, it's not a new phenomenon. Older people rolling their eyes at the young, and then but, but is it, now it's now it's just only within ten or fifteen years. Yes, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, a terrifying yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it it's, comes it's around telescoped. Yes, exactly. Uh, rolling your eyes at the young is getting younger or something. Coming coming around more often. Um, uh, Rachel, we need to well just talk about um, you've. I mean, you're busy. You've got a book out, and you and uh, past imperfect is back. Um, yes, your podcast, exactly. the Times Radio series. Yeah, so the new latest episode uh, is with Hugo Monnier, the rugby player and Strictly star, who's really interesting on growing up, um, the racism he's experienced, his father leaving and so on, um, the adversity he's overcome. And then Alice and I also have a book out this week called What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which is based on that, um, on the podcast. Uh, and we've just spoken to so many people over over the years who have overcome some kind of trauma or adversity in their childhood. And we just brought together those interviews and looked at why, why it was, what it is that drives people on. Um, Tony Blair calls it the spur to your success. And there's something mm. rather optimistic about it, actually, that you don't have to be defined by your past or destroyed by an unhappy past. It is possible to overcome. With, um, and that, uh, you know, it, it's rather kind of optimistic for parents uh, and for um, children um, that you can um, overcome those things, even the most terrible traumas. And at the moment, you know, coming out of the pandemic, that, you know, it doesn't have to all be terrible, that you, the ch uh, children can learn resilience, mm. you know, empathy, uh, all those kind of character strengths that come from uh, struggling. 
Yes, it's, it's fascinating having this done about people who are still around now because a few years back, Matthew Paris did a book called Fracture, uh, which was the same sort of theme, but he talked about people like Marie Curie and Lenin and yes. Ada Lovelace and Frida Kahlo. And I'm, I'm sort of uh, rather hopefully waiting for a book about people who had a perfectly adequate, amiable, <laughs> happy childhood and, and ended up as sort of really rather middle, middling, mediocre people like me <laughs> far, far. I, I will not i will not uh, i will not allow you to be described as media well there'll, there'll be people there'll be people sort of watching this now you know who are in their early 20s and thinking oh damn you know clearly my I, i'm ruined i never got fractured i never i never got unhappy <laughs> enough as a child but i think what's really interesting is that sometimes it doesn't have to be something huge that happens it doesn't have to be a bereavement it doesn't have to be cruelty it can just be a time of very great uh, sort of misunderstanding and yeah. being out of t out of time with people around you, uh, yeah. which spurs you on. It doesn't have well, to be a every, disaster. Everyone has, has been through it collectively over the last two years. In That's a way, true. everybody's had a, a trauma, and I think there is a kind of strength that comes from that. That was Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is The Big Thing. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to The Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Today represents a very significant moment of change. It's a defining moment for our politics and for our people. I'm thrilled. You know, the SNP has increased its share of the vote, increased the number of councillors. Uh, we've won the election and we've won the election by a country mile. That was the First Minister, well, the potentially First Minister of Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, after Sinn Féin won the elections to the Stormont Assembly. And, of course, the Scottish First Minister, leader of the SNP, Nicola Sturgeon. Two nationalists now at the forefront of running two countries in the UK. In Scotland, the SNP are continuing to push for a second independence referendum. And now, in Northern Ireland... A referendum on a united Ireland is inevitable. At least that's according to Patrick Mac McLaughlin, a Sinn Féin Irish MP who spoke to Carol Walker on Times Radio yesterday. Every observer knows that in due course, in the not too distant future, could be five years, could be ten years, uh, a democratic vote will happen for a united Ireland. We need to manage that responsibly. We need to assure unionists of their safety, of their place in a new Ireland, of the continuance of their relationship. With Britain, we know that obviously they are unionists. They'll never change for being unionists. We have to respect that and value that in a new Ireland. Okay. But we need to do it responsibly. And if, even in Wales, Plaid Cymru, the Nationalist Party of Wales, won more councillors than the Conservatives in the elections last week. So what I want to do is take a look at whether the, to give them their full title, the Conservative and Unionist Party can conserve the union. Boris Johnson, of course, uh, officially, one of his many titles is Minister for the Union. He's put together various union strategy committees over the years to try and figure out how to secure its future. But when people go to the polling stations, put their tick in the vault, it doesn't appear to be working. 
Well, in this half hour, we'll take a look at why we'll try and get around the country uh, to see how the Conservatives' approach to conserving the union might actually work. But first, let's speak to Chris Curtis, Head of Political Polling at Opinion. Morning, Chris. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Oh, very good. So, so talk us through the picture of how nationalist parties are doing in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and uh, what the trend is, because obviously, you know, a trend is always more important than a snapshot. Um, I mean, the first thing to bear in mind is that um, uh, while nas nationalist parties are quite popular, there's still in none of those nations um, a majority who are in support of the nationalist cause you know if you look at it, Scotland Northern Ireland or Wales there is a majority in the case of Wales a large majority um, in favour of uh, remaining part of the union at this stage um, the reason those nationalist parties tend to do well is because there's one nationalist party that hoovers up all of the nationalist vote pretty much in all three cases whereas the uh, unionist vote is split between lots of different parties so in Scotland that's Labour and the Conservatives what's happened in Northern Ireland is that you know the unionists who are wound up by the DUP have split off and gone some of them have gone to the alliance some of them have gone to other unionist parties um, and you know to a certain extent the same is happening in Wales as well and that's basically the reason why why you've, you've got this situation where unionist uh, nationalist parties are doing pretty well but the nationalist cause is still sort of in in, in no case getting getting majority support is there a sense that uh, nationalist parties doing well might uh, act as a sort of gateway drug towards nationalism that actually the SNP being in power for so long in Scotland does appear to have coincided with a rise in support for independence. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, what the SNP has, you know, done is they're, they're still, after a very long period in power, still popular and still believed to be running things pretty well. But I, mean, I think these arguments, in the end, you know, however much we try to make them emotional, in in all cases are going to come down to practicalities. You know, people in Scotland are going to decide based on the economic reality. Do they think that Scotland will be better off being independent or being a member of the United Kingdom? And even in Northern Ireland, to a certain extent, I think that's true. The only way um, the in the long term uh, you're going to be able to keep support for uh, the union in Northern Ireland is by making the argument that it's the practical choice to, to remain a part of the union and and I think this is this is the issue we're having at the moment is that that you know there's many sort of reasonable arguments uh, for Westminster for the Conservative Party to be making along that front but you know given given what's happened to Northern Ireland in recent years given you know the difficulties the current government's facing they're doing their best they possibly can uh, to make the union argument, unionist argument as hard as is possible. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, why the unionist parties are struggling in these places. Um, and to what extent does uh, having a conservative uh, prime minister who uh, is, I think it's fair to say, more popular than in England than in other parts of, of the union um, cross over then into attitudes towards the union and independence. They, you know, some people argue Boris Johnson is the secret weapon for independence in Scotland and so on. You know, like you said, the impact of uh, Brexit in Northern Ireland doesn't appear to be helping matters. Or, or are voters capable of separating those two things, of realising that actually a prime, you know, um, independence is, is for life, not just for Christmas or, or whatever the right metaphor is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, obviously, voters are able to separate that out, and they did in 2014. But it is certainly true that the more unpopular the government is in Westminster and the more popular the government, if we take Scotland for as an example, the more popular the government is in Scotland, the easier it's going to be for Nicola Sturgeon to make the argument, wouldn't you prefer to be run by us rather than be run by them? 
Chris Curtis, thanks so much for talking us through the, uh, the public attitudes. Chris Curtis, Head of Political Polling at Opinion. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's bring uh, together two uh, close observers of the Conservative Party and unionism. Uh, Henry Hill is Deputy Editor of the Conservative Home website. Hi, Henry. Hello. And Chris Montgomery is the editor of The Critic magazine, former director of the cross-party organisation Friends of the Union, former chief of staff at uh, the DUP, so knows this from lots of angles. Hi, Chris. Hello. Um, Henry, do you think the Conservative and Unionist Party is having a, uh, a sort of existential problem with conserving the union? Uh, it's more that it's not really doing all that much to do it at the moment. There's a big division, if you look at the history of the Conservative uh, Union strategy, to the extent they have one, over the last few years between so-called muscular unionism, this is people who want to take a more proactive approach to sort of building up the capacity of the British state to act in the devolved areas, and more traditional kind of devolutionary unionists whose approach is more to try and, you know, buy off the nationalists with concessions, play for time and hope the problem goes away on its own. Now, the, the union unit, which Boris Johnson had set up, which was supposed to be dedicated to dealing with this collapsed after the resignation of Oliver Lewis, and he couldn't seem to find anyone else to fill it. And the sources I talked to speak of continual tension between, on the one hand, the territorial offices, places, uh, other departments which want to use the UK Internal Markets Act, which was a controversial piece of legislation passed by the government, and uh, Michael Gove and the people formerly in charge of the government's union policy who keep blocking, effectively, attempts to use it. So it's not so much they're having an existential crisis, it's that they can't even agree on what the strategy is supposed to be. Uh, what do you think, uh, Chris Montgomery, about the uh, focus on Northern Ireland in particular, was it always inevitable to some extent that if Brexit happened and the DUP were the ones who backed it and they are at odds with the public opinion in Northern Ireland, that this we were going to head for this crisis we're now seeing? We haven't headed to any crisis. So calling it a crisis isn't warranted. Sinn Féin haven't increased the number of MLAs they have. So people are behaving as if there's some great victory for Sinn Féin when in fact they come into this election with the number of MLAs they had after the last election. I'd actually pick up on something Chris, uh, Chris, Chris said. Hang on a minute, hang on. They have, won, sure. they have won the election on the basis of the rules as they stand. They won the election and the DUP, no, uh, the voice no, of that, unionism, has done very badly. Again, to use a very boring term, that's not how the rules stand. If only elections in Northern Ireland were won by the parties that won them, nobody wins elections in Northern Ireland. There's a dreadful thing called power sharing or... Uh, co-secessional uh, sharing of political power, if you want to use a boring academic term. Uh, if anyone thinks that winning an election in Northern Ireland makes a difference, well then why didn't it make a difference for all those previous elections when the unionists apparently won elections? Well, it didn't make any difference because the uh, power sharing executive can't do anything. They veto each other. So it, it makes no odds that Sinn Féin are the party that lost least support at this election. Does it make any difference to the future of the union that the DUP appear to be losing support as the previously uh, most dominant voice of unionism closest to the Conservative and Unionist Party? It makes it more difficult to elect unionist representatives in the devolved body because of the form of STV that's used for elections uniquely in Northern Ireland. Particular forms of vote shredding happen. So the supposedly centrist alliance party had a fantastic election. But they, like the, their sister party, the Lib Dems on the mainland, are great supporters of proportional representation. They didn't have a proportional result. The form of STV used has flattered them. So they got many more MLAs than their exact share of the vote um, would have warranted. So I, the only problem that having the DUP fumbling the ball, and it has, of course, fumbled the ball, 
is that it means that unionists aren't uniting around one large party the way nationalists are uniting around one large party. So Sinn Féin scooped the pool by being a super dominant nationalist party the way the SNP scooped the pool in Scotland. Whereas if you have constant unionist vote shredding and there are three main unionist parties uh, in the assembly, TUV, DUP and UUP, that does weaken unions from being so divided. But is that, so, so I suppose my, my point is that the DUP was the dominant uh, unionist party and its uh, role in Brexit being so so uh, pro-Brexit and the impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol does appear to have, you know, it, it, the D, it's not, it's not uh, the DUP are not an innocent party in this. They are, to some extent, the master of their own destiny and the political choices again, they've made again, has affected their uh, public support. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Matt, but again, I, I'm not playing the Ulster card here, but I'm just saying, it hasn't made any difference to how nationalists vote that unionists supported Brexit. There wasn't a single nationalist who said to himself, oh, I'm not voting for a nationalist party because we're in the EU, care of Northern Ireland being part of the UK. Now that we're not in the EU, I'm suddenly going to turn around and vote nationalist. It just hasn't made any difference and there's no evidence that it's made any difference. Henry Hill, uh, let's bring you back in. To what extent do you think that um, you, you chronicled the various union units and so on that have been... Uh, proposed and you know attack units and whatever at various times by by Boris Johnson. Do you think this is a government gripped by the potential threat to the union? Not really. I think that they will, on a tactical level. Um, there's already talk in CCHQ of reviving the very effective uh, 2015 election campaign, which portrayed Ed Miliband as being in Alex Salmond's pocket. And there is, you know, the idea that there is there's a hung parliament. Then the Labour Party will be dependent on the votes of the of the SNP. Sinn Féin obviously don't take their seats. Um, and there's a lot of excitement about that. But I think ultimately Boris Johnson, while he may have an instincts one way or the other, he's not greatly seized by the question of the United Kingdom. He doesn't want to be the, the Prime Minister who loses it, nobody does, but it's not the question of how to save it, how to build a stronger union, isn't something that gets him out of bed in the morning. And I think that the problem that the Conservatives have is that there is almost this sort of generational split between people who still effectively stand by the old sort of post-98 New Labour consensus about what the best approach to the Constitution is, which is broadly um, give away powers and, and sort of hope that the SNP goes away at some point and people who want to go on the attack. And the Tory party, because Boris Johnson hasn't shown any leadership on this question, has managed to get into a very strange position where Michael Gove, the man who is formally in charge of the government's union policy, is completely out of sympathy with the most of the people in the territorial offices and the other people and the other departments that are actually responsible for dealing with the union on a day to day basis. Uh, just funny, uh, Chris Montgomery. Are you in any way concerned that uh, the result last week, if not making it more likely, points in the direction that we could be heading for Northern Ireland leaving the Union? No, I, do, I don't think the... I, I'm not saying this is a propagandist. I'm not paid to be a propagandist anymore. It hasn't <laughs> made any difference. It's not that sort of election, and it hasn't had that sort of result. If I was still a professional unionist, if I was still running something like Trends the Union, I'd be much, much more worried about Scotland. Um, the union is more popular in Northern Ireland on the basis of this election than it is in Scotland, where the SNP and other pro-independence parties got about 45% in the local elections last week. So, as Henry says, the Conservative and Unionist Party has no unionist arguments to the threat of nationalism, other than giving more devolution to the devolved fringe of the UK, which has spurred on the nationalism in the first place. 
Chris Montgomery, uh, really good to speak to you uh, as ever. Uh, editor of the uh, Critic magazine now, uh, former director of the Cross-Party Organisation, Friends of the Union. Also good to speak to Henry Hill, deputy editor at Conservative Home. And literally in the last few minutes, Nicola Sturgeon has said her government will soon start refreshing the positive case for Scottish independence. As she insisted, recent election results show there is a growing sense that the UK in its current state is not serving the needs of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. She was speaking out, of course, after Sinn Féin won the most seats, 27 out of 90, in last week's Stormont election. Let's speak to Julian Smith, former Northern Ireland Secretary, who's on the line. Morning, Julian. Hi, Matt. Uh, we've also got Stephen Kerr, Conservative uh, MSP in Scotland, for Central Scotland. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Matt. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with Julian as well. He's also Hi, a native Stephen, of Sterling. Right. There we yeah, are. Yeah. Bring us a nice reunion. Um, Julian, if you were Northern Ireland Secretary this morning, what would you be doing? Well, look, I'm a, a, a backbencher on, in the Conservative Party, so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't want to uh, give uh, advice to my government colleagues. But there is really only one route uh, going forward, and that is to cut a deal with the European Union. And I hope that Northern Ireland parties, Northern Ireland business will make clear what they require. Unionists have got about 40% of the vote, nationalists about 40% of the vote. And as you know, power sharing relies on both sets, both designations to get back into power. So political unionism does need a deal. Uh, a lot of people are happy with the protocol in Northern Ireland, but really to, to get power sharing back up and running, I think the DUP and other unionist parties need to be clear with the EU about what's needed and the UK government need to, need to listen. It's not about the ERG, it's about Northern Ireland. The ERG have, of course, been uh, Conservative MPs in, in Westminster uh, who are uh, particularly pro-Brexit. Just on the, on the, on the DUP... Are you confident that they they want a solution to be found? Or is this, we're not happy with the protocol, actually a cover for them not wanting to, to enter a power-sharing agreement where Sinn Féin have the first minister? No, I'm confident that they want to serve people in Northern Ireland. Geoffrey Donaldson leads a high-quality team of MLAs. Uh, they have, uh, as with all politicians in Northern Ireland, realised uh, that as for all politicians across the UK, cost of living is the key uh, argument and they don't want to be sitting around not serving voters so i hope that over the coming days the eu and uk can come to a deal uh, and uh, then power sharing can uh, can resume can resume uh, stephen what's the picture in in scotland uh, not a great uh, result in terms of uh, the local elections last week and you've got nicola sturgeon saying she's going to refresh the case for independence the conservative and unionist party is not doing a great job of conserving the union in scotland well, I think we've got to put these results into context, Matt. I mean, I know that we didn't have a very good election. We lost 63 really wonderful Conservative and Unionist councillors who were real champions for their communities. But at the same time, I have to make it clear that we had our second best local election results in 40 years last Thursday. And the Conservative Party now has 213 uh, councillors. If you go back to 2012, we had 100 fewer than that. So the Conservative uh, Party in Scotland, yes, didn't have a great result. Nicola Sturgeon, well, Sorry, it's Stephen, kind of Stephen, okay, Stephen, Stephen, hang on. Are you are you trying to say that you lost? It's not good news that you lost a lot of no. councillors, is it? No, of course it's not. Of course not. But I'm trying to put I'm trying to put that result into the context of where the Scottish Conservative Party was ten years ago and where it is now. Yeah, but the, the context is that a few years ago. Yeah, but the context is a few years ago you were doing quite well. Uh, and had the best results ever, and now you appear to be heading in the wrong direction. 
we had extraordinary results in, in, in 2017. I mean, yeah. we had record-breaking results. What I'm saying to you, Matt, is I'm trying to put this into context. We've just had our second best results in 40 years, and all these things need to be seen in context. What we've got is Groundhog Day. We're in a in, 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 in a logjam, really, when it comes to the Constitution in Scotland. We've pretty much had 55% of the electorate voting for unionist parties and 45% uh, voting for separatist parties. We're, we're, we're where we've ever been until we get out of this situation. I'm afraid that's where we're stuck. Um, and when Nicola Sturgeon talks about refreshing uh, the case for independence, she can't change she can't change the facts. And the facts now, if anything, point to the fact that it would be complete madness really for Scotland to be separated from the rest of the United Kingdom at a time when we really do need to stick together. So why not uh, honour the uh, democratic mandate that the SNP have got, put that to a referendum, lay out your facts and you'll win it? The fact is that every opinion poll that there's been since the election last May shows that the people of Scotland do not want this to be the dominating issue of Scottish politics. They do not want a referendum that Nicola Sturgeon is threatening to hold one way or another next year. What they want us to focus on are the things that matter to people up and down the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. They want us to focus on the cost of living. They want us to focus on our economy. They want to focus on our schools. And Scottish schools have got more than their fair share of problems. They want us to focus on the state of the NHS and remobilising it post-pandemic. They don't want us to keep talking about the same old stuff which Nicola Sturgeon, of course, obsesses about. So why does she keep winning elections? If that's the case, why does she keep winning elections? If she's so out of touch with what the Scots want to talk about, why does she keep winning elections? Well, the SNP got 34% of the poll last uh, Thursday. Um, And... On, on, an, on, a, on a low turnout, which in itself is a concern for, should be a concern for all of us as Democrats. The reality is that Nicola Sturgeon has, you know, uses what she's got to, to great effect. She effectively operates as an opposition in Scotland, even though she's the government. What we've got to do as Scottish Conservatives is do better at holding this Scottish government, this SNP Scottish government, to account. That's what uh, energises us. Uh, to do better in, in, in Scottish Conservatives. We need to do much better at showing the people of Scotland that there is something better than the incompetent, and I would even argue corrupt, uh, government that we've currently got at Holyrood. Would, would the Conservatives in Scotland be doing better if Boris Johnson wasn't the leader in Westminster? There's no doubt that last Thursday's results were depressed by Boris Johnson and the Partygate fiasco that we've all been living through now for months, and that worked against the interests of people coming out to vote Conservative. Our our voters were among the most angry about all of that, and you can tell that in the way that many just stayed at home. They wouldn't vote for us, but they wouldn't vote for anyone else. So, you know, the events at at Westminster have certainly not helped us in the slightest, Matt. That's not a secret. Would you like him to go? Would you like somebody else in charge? Well, right now, I think uh, Douglas Ross has articulated our position as Scottish Conservatives, and that is that while the war in Ukraine is at the point it's at, and while the UK is playing such an important role in all this, this is the wrong time for us as Conservatives to become distracted into weeks and months of leadership uh, elections. What what we've got to do is come back to this. Uh, there, there has to be a day when these things are faced up to and dealt with, but this is not the day. as is evidenced by the the news agenda today from Moscow and all the other things that are going on. Our focus has got to be as the United Kingdom, allowing the Prime Minister and the government to get on with with doing what it's doing and doing so well in terms of supporting uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. 
Uh, Julian Smith, the same uh, question to you, really. Do you think the union would be in safer hands with a different person in charge? Look, we, are, we have to prioritise now uh, getting a deal with the EU on the protocol and getting power sharing up and running in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, that has to be the priority. Uh, we need the EU to shift. They've indicated this morning through their ambassadors to the UK that they're happy to meet in Belfast, London or anywhere to talk about the protocol and find resolution. Uh, voters in Northern Ireland uh, need uh, cost of living issues dealt with and then and MLAs need to get back to work. So for the UK government and the EU, uh, the time is now to resolve this, get a deal and let Northern Ireland move on. Would you expect Boris Johnson to go to Northern Ireland to try and uh, resolve this? Is it enough just sending your, your successor, Brandon Lewis? Well, again, it's not for me to sort of advise the government, but uh, everyone needs to be all hands uh, to, to, to the wheel or, uh, to actually uh, to the pump to, to get things moving. Uh, that will involve um, uh, Prime Minister to Prime Minister discussion, it will involve uh, Secretary of State uh, to Minister discussion. Uh, we need to get it moving. But the, the key thing is the only sustainable route for Northern Ireland is a negotiated deal with the EU. And talk of a just finally, Julian Smith. Talk of a of a of a border poll. The idea of a, a poll on uh, Northern Ireland joining the rest of uh, Ireland is that just rhetoric from Sinn Fein, or do you think that's something that we should be concerned about? Well, it's to be expected that uh, Sinn Fein um, uh, call for that. The, the polling shows no, no demand for it. There is no evidence for it, as you know, under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, there is uh, an obligation on the Secretary of State to consider. Uh, you know, the uh, the demand for border poll. At the moment, there is uh, no demand uh, and it's all to play for in terms of making the case uh, to uh, unaligned and people that have been tempted by Sinn Féin uh, to, to say to them that the union is the best place for defence, for security, for health. Uh, but we have to do that with more humility. We have to do that with a commitment to negotiation with the EU. Uh, and we have to go about it uh, carefully, you know, in the very fragile ecosystem that is Northern Ireland politics. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.